Last Sunday, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. And after briefly going over the passage, I pointed out two crucial features of Peter's argument regarding what it means to be a Christian. Um, conversion and the power of the word. And I mentioned at the end of the sermon that if we fail to understand what Peter meant by these two things, we will not learn from this letter what we should. Uh, We may get something from it, but not what Peter intended. I really think this is crucial to understanding 1 Peter, and so by way of review, I want to go over these two things again, conversion and the power of the word. Up to this point in his letter, Peter has, in different ways, written about conversion. In chapter 1, verse 3, he's spoken about new birth uh, into a living hope. In chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again. And these we expect, but then there are other expressions which speak of a breaking with the past and a new beginning. Uh, Verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore rid yourselves. And he gives a list of sins. These point to a change. A conversion is to have taken place. But what does conversion refer to? I would suggest the following for you to consider. First of all, conversion refers to both an event and a process. As with natural birth, human birth, there is a point at which one can say a child is born. Um, But I think we need to be careful that we don't read too much into this because we have to answer the question, when does life begin? Certainly not when the child is born. The child is alive in the womb. There is a point at which life begins, but we may not be conscious of it. Um, That doesn't change the reality that life has already begun. Once life has begun, so has the process of life. And so we can speak as we have of the already, not yet, that we are already the children of God, but we are in the process and we look forward, as Peter writes, of the living hope, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that we are being kept until that time. So we have new life, and yet that life will be completed at the return of Jesus. Salvation is not something that we are merely waiting for. It is something toward which we are moving. Conversion must be considered a part of this process. The second thing I would suggest to you about conversion is that it involves a reconstruction of how we see ourselves. That is to say, this is how I am now. I am a child of God. I am obedient. I am one who has been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. This is not who I used to be. Who I used to be was someone who had evil desires, who was ignorant, and who followed an empty way of life. So I need to look at myself in a different way and reconstruct how I view myself because conversion involves being converted. This is who I was. This is who I am now. But it is also process. So this is who I am in the process of becoming. The third thing is that conversion is a profoundly social act. Um, We tend to think of it as a religious, a spiritual phenomenon, but certainly not social. But if it were not social, then the fact that Peter refers to these people as elect, as strangers, as chosen strangers, as those, in a sense, who have been alienated from society, ostracized, would not make sense. 
But if this is who we used to be, which is like everyone else, and we have been converted, then there are profound social implications. We don't live the way that we used to, the way that other people still live. The fourth thing about conversion that I would suggest to you, and perhaps this is what I would want you to remember most, is that it involves incorporation or inclusion into a new community. A community that is marked by different practices. And Peter begins by speaking of the fact that we are to love one another. We are to love one another deeply. The language of family is crucial. Sincere love for your brothers, Peter writes. I think this is to counter the business of being strangers. Yes, I may be a stranger to society, but I am in fact a brother within the family of God. As I mentioned last Sunday, I think that our presentation or the presentation we hear of the good news of the gospel today often lacks this component. The reality that when one is converted, one is brought into a family, into a community, into the church, oftentimes is neglected. Instead, what is emphasized is the personal aspect. And even as such as to say, accept Jesus Christ as your own personal savior. Almost as though this is someone you don't share with other people. This is your own personal savior. But let me ask you a question. If you were speaking to someone about the Christian faith and telling them this is what it means to be a Christian, and that person, he or she, would ask you, okay, if, if I do what you say, if I choose to become a Christian, will I have to join a church? what would your answer be? Would you say, no, you don't have to? Or would you say, no, but you'd really want to, sort of hedge your bet there? Or would you say, yes, in fact, when you become a Christian, you're to be a part of the people of God? I think this is something we really need to think about and think through in our own lives. I fear that we do a great disservice to the truth if we fail to see conversion as involving inclusion in the community. I understand that being a part of a church is not the same as conversion, that joining a church is not being born again. And I also understand that there is an intensely personal dimension to becoming a child of God. But let us be careful, living in an individualistic age, which freedom is seen as the highest virtue, we may be tempted to rework the gospel and to redefine conversion and make it intensely personal only and no sense of inclusion into the family of God. The fifth thing that I mentioned about conversion is that new life grows out of and is centered in the word of God. In verse number 22 of chapter 1, obeying the truth. And then verse 25, but the word of the Lord stands forever, which leads us to the second crucial feature. The first is conversion, and the second is the power or the effectiveness of the word. We could make the argument that apart from the preaching of the word, there would be no conversion or no conversions. And one could also make the, um, the argument that apart from the word of God, there would be no process of growth toward the salvation that is to be revealed, as Peter writes it. If you look at verse number 25, he says, not only does the word of the Lord stand forever, this is the word that was preached to you. Verses 23 and 25, I mentioned, we might see almost as parenthetical, sort of supporting evidence to what Peter's trying to say. I think, in fact, they are central. It is the word that makes these things possible. Uh, 
the word of truth, the word which was preached to them, the gospel of truth, which they obeyed, which they continued to obey. It is through the word of God that we learn a new way of life, that we learn a new way of looking at the world, that we learn to see things as they truly are. It is through the word that we are converted. And the result is, as Peter sees it, is not something temporary, um, as is life on this planet. Quoting from Isaiah 40, all men are like grass. And their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But this life is, in fact, something eternal. The word of God, the good news, is living. It is everlasting. And if believers have been given new birth through his word, then the life into which they have been born is unending. And our love for one another is to endure as well. Let me say that again. Our love for one another is to endure as well. In short, the word of God, the good news, is effective in generating new life, in cultivating that new life, and in sustaining that new life. It is through the word that new birth is given. Believers are to live the word of truth, having set themselves aside or set themselves apart for the purpose of brotherly love. They must love, they must yearn for the word. And it is in the word that they grow up into their salvation. These are the two crucial features, conversion and the power of the word of God. The reason, at least one of them, for me going over them, is I fear that the gospel has been redefined. First of all, in individualistic terms, um, that it is that becoming a Christian is seen purely as individual. Um, and I think our, our, our view of what it means to be a Christian has been skewed. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, also, I think we, like the culture, tend to view everything as transactional. Even relationships are seen as transactional. Marriage is seen as a contract. And then with the advent of Facebook, you can friend someone. You can like something, that it is something that you click. It is a transaction. Some would argue that this goes back, you know, philosophically and, you know, in terms of political science to Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau. Um, that's possible. I don't know that we think that deeply anymore. I think it's much more economic now that everything is, in fact, a matter of transaction. The belief that everything has a price. Uh, and that haggling is necessary to determine that price. But, you know, in the end, it's simply a matter of transaction. I've told you the story before, but years ago at Circuit City, when it was still around, Guy and I were trying to get someone to wait on us and no one would wait on us. And we finally went to the manager and said, you know, we would like to buy something and no one will take care of us. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that. Here's a $10 gift certificate for your inconvenience. And I'm like, we don't want a $10 gift certificate. We want someone to wait on us. You know, the idea that everything can be reduced to a dollar amount, I think that's where our transactional view of relationships come in. I think that the church has been into this much longer than we realize, that we think that if we do something, God is obligated to respond as we want him to. Um, and that even salvation that if you say this magical little prayer, God has to save you, views the whole business as transactional. Um, it's not something that's organic. It's almost like 
clicking a button. It's like on your mouse, just clicking and friending God. Or God saving you. And, th- and there it is. Now you're going to heaven. And if that's how we see conversion, as merely something personal and individual, um, and not a process, and not being a part of a community, um, then we really have missed the boat. And First Peter is very important to correct our misgivings or our misunderstandings. I hope that we see in the passage today, which we'll get to in a bit, that when believers come to Christ, they are at the same time coming into the church. And that the church has the character of a temple. It is to fulfill the functions of a temple. And the church stands in continuity with God's people since, Abraham, uh, since God called Abraham and made him the father of many nations. So that's why we talked about conversion. But about the power of the word. We live in an age, it has been argued, in which the word has been replaced by the image. And by word, I don't mean the word of God. I simply mean the word. That people uh, are much more visual than they are in terms of reading. Um, I mentioned last Sunday that I think the view of Scripture as a resource, as a manual, has really dominated in the church. And I don't want to go too far with this, but consider that we live in a society that, for the most part, does not read. And those who do read, I think, don't read deeply. Um, There's this commercial where a woman says that I I read this article online. She says, well, the majority of this article. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the way most people read today. They don't read the whole thing. They just read most of it or or part of it. The idea that a text can involve a relationship, I think, has faded. In fact, in some critical theories, it is taught that the text means whatever I, as the reader, wants it to mean. It's not the writer, what they're saying, it's whatever I want it to mean. Well, if that's the case, then the writer, ironically, is almost unnecessary except for the fact that he, and he or she wrote the text, they're almost unnecessary because it's all up to me. The fact is the text, the word is a place in which the writer and the reader are to meet and are to have a relationship. Um, how does this affect our view of Scripture? Well, again, it's been reduced to the status of the owner's manual. It has been stripped of its power. And the notion of a relationship between us and God in Scripture, I think, is gone. When Peter says that the word of the Lord stands forever, I think on some level, this is, we understand this very superficially if we fail to understand what Peter meant by conversion and the power of the word. If we fail to understand these two things, then the rest of the letter, I think, will be lost to us. Okay, today, now we come to our passage. And in our passage today, I I mentioned when we began this series that it is up until the end of verse number 10 that we have the first section. First of all, you have the introduction, the author, the audience, the greeting, thanksgiving. And then the first part, which is the basic characteristics of a Christian. That is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, The Lord willing, next week we will begin at verse number 11, in which we have the second section, the social conduct of a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. Now this is how a Christian is supposed to live. But today we come to verses 4 through 10, the last portion of this first section. Um, 
Peter is trying to flesh out what it means to be a Christian, a chosen stranger. And he looks to the witness of two things. The witness of Scripture, the Old Testament, and the vocation of Jesus. And what we find is not only is the Old Testament to be understood in the light of Jesus, but that the life of Jesus is also a guide for us as we live our lives in the formation of our identity as the church and in the pursuit of our mission as the church. Peter reads the situation of his audience, the Christian audience, from the perspective of the life of Jesus. And he reads the life of Jesus from the perspective of the Old Testament. And so there is this continuity that exists. Our passage today, beginning at verse number four, is in fact connected to what comes previously. And we see this in the pronoun him in verse number four. Him refers back to the Lord in verse number three. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, which is from Psalm 34. I struggled a bit in in preparing the sermon for this because in some ways I would have been much more comfortable if Peter had put verses four and ten, uh, four and five at the end rather than at the beginning. Because what he does, verses four and five, they set the theme. Okay, and then it's fleshed out in verses six through ten. But the vocabulary comes from six through ten. So if you only read four and five, you don't you don't get a complete picture. You have to read the rest and you're like Ah, that's what he meant when he did said or wrote what he did in verses 4 and 5. Look, if you would, at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. At the start, it is worth noting that the verb to come means to come to worship. This is probably taken from Psalm 34 as well. Um, So there is this aspect of worship. When we are converted, it isn't like, yes, we're going to heaven and we're set. When we come to Christ, there's this ongoing process. And part of that process is, in fact, worship. He is the one whom we worship. And who is he? He is the living stone one who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. The second part is taken from Psalm 118, which Peter will quote more fully in verse number 7. But what about the first part, the living stone? The Old Testament metaphor of the stone we find used oftentimes in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul uses rock to refer to Christ, that he was the rock that traveled with Israel through the wilderness. But here he adds living to indicate that Jesus is the risen one. But even though he is the living rock, the focus is that he is the one who is rejected by humanity, chosen by God and precious to him. Does this sound familiar to you at all? If you look at the beginning of the book, it sounds like what we heard at the beginning of the letter, to God's elect strangers in the world. As strangers, they are those who have been rejected, chosen by God, but rejected by the world. And so there's that paradox. Jesus is chosen and is precious to God, but he is rejected by men. That Peter would refer to Psalm 118 is not unusual. It's referred to a number of times in the New Testament, most significantly by Jesus after the parable of the tenants. We find this in Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. 
But fascinatingly enough, the first time that Peter is arrested by the Sanhedrin and brought with John before the Sanhedrin, they make their defense. And the only place that they quote the Old Testament in their defense is Psalm 118, that he is, in fact, uh, the one who is rejected by men, but precious to God. This is who we come to worship. And as we've seen, we become like what we worship. We share his vocation. We share his situation. We're not equal to him, but we are to be like him. Verse number five. You also like living stones. He's the living stone. We are like living stones. Are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have been given new life in him, and thus we are like living stones. And what does one do with stones? One builds. One builds here a spiritual house. Here, by the way, Peter uses the word we would expect for spiritual, pneumaticos. Remember earlier, the spiritual milk, that wasn't the word that is normally used. But when we see the word spiritual in the the epistles, this means of the spirit. It doesn't mean lofty or high or different. It means that which belongs to the spirit. We're being built into a spiritual house. Remember what I said about conversion, inclusion into a a community? Absolutely. Each one of us is a living stone that is a part of this spiritual building. By myself, I am not a spiritual building. I might say that I am a living stone, but that is what is a stone for? It has a purpose, and the purpose is for a building. And so we together are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood where we find spiritual sacrifices. The picture is that of a temple. A house is where people live. The spiritual house, the house of the spirit, is where God lives. And this is what we are supposed to do. One is reminded, by the way, of the prophecy of Haggai in chapter 2. The glory of this present house, that is the temple, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The community of believers and not the individual believer is itself the temple, the place of the presence of the glory of God. And in the temple, there must be those who serve. Priests. And so we have a holy priesthood. And those who serve, what do they do? They offer spiritual sacrifices. That is that which is of the spirit. What could Peter have in mind when he uses the phrase spiritual sacrifices? In verse 15 of chapter 1, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. In verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. I can just imagine that someone saying, I think you're reaching on that one, Damon. I, I don't know that that's what Peter's talking about. But consider what we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. First Peter, uh, sorry, First Samuel 15. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. From Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices, and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me 
and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in the ways I command you that it may go well with you. The spiritual sacrifices, it's obedience, doing what God says. In the New Testament, we're probably more familiar with this, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. In Hebrews 13, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Here we are given more specifics. We are to help one another. We are part of a community. We are the people of God, the family of God. And part of our spiritual sacrifice is to help one another. As is praising God. Worshiping God is our spiritual sacrifice. In Philippians 4, as Paul sort of wraps up his letter to his friends in Philippi, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is what God wants. Thus, Peter refers to it as acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have become a part of the spiritual house and holy priesthood through what Jesus Christ has done. Now, having said this, in verses 4 and 5, Peter now gives the supporting material from the Old Testament and from the life of Jesus. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 10. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe that this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Stop there. As Christians today, I think we may face this objection. When we say this is the truth, people would say, well, wait a minute. You believe this, but far more people do not believe what you say is true. And by the way, in a tolerant society, how dare you tell me that what you believe is true because what you're saying is what I believe is not true. That is a difficulty, but I think it pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters in the first century faced. Because the majority of them were Gentiles. And they had appropriated, as people saw it, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish Messiah, and they had reworked it, they had reinterpreted him in a way that was unacceptable to the Jews. So it's almost as though they hijacked the Jewish faith and were presenting it as the Christian faith. If you're a Gentile believer, this presents real problems. I think this is what Peter addresses here. What does it mean to be a Christian? How can you be right and the Jews be wrong? How can you say Jesus is the Messiah when they say he is not? Well, Peter says, let's look at the Old Testament and see what the Old Testament says. In the process, he draws out a comparison between those who believe and those who do not believe. A contrast, by the way, that was foretold in the Old Testament. This should not surprise them. It should not surprise us that people do not believe the gospel. This is something that was foretold. Uh, 
He presents three Old Testament passages, and some of the translations have a footnote at the bottom telling you where it comes from. Uh, The first one is from Isaiah 28. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You may not be familiar with the context of this verse. In Isaiah 28, God is railing against the rulers of Jerusalem. They think that they are safe from trouble. They have made political alliances, and so everything is fine. They think that they are safe. The Lord, on the other hand, sees himself as a builder. He's about to lay a cornerstone. It is radically different than the way the rulers in Jerusalem think. He chose the cornerstone. It is of high quality. It is precious to him. And as we find in Isaiah, the Lord's building will be built with justice and righteousness. And therefore, if you trust in the Lord, you will never be put to shame. The second uh, Old Testament reference is from uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Simply put, the verdict of the builders has been rejected. They looked at this stone and they say, no, we cannot, this is not of sufficient quality, this doesn't have the dimensions we want, we will not use this. They have rejected it. But in fact... God has rejected their rejection and Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. The human verdict was wrong. It was wrong about Jesus. It is wrong about those to whom Peter is writing. The third Old Testament quote is from Isaiah 8. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Uh, This passage, by the way, uh, Isaiah 1 begins with, Uh, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. In other words, Isaiah is told, listen, this is the way the people are going. Don't go that way. Because when they go this path, they will stumble over what God has said, and they will fall. Isaiah is told, don't fear the people, fear God. God is a sanctuary for his people. But for those who are not his people, he is one who causes them to stumble and to be destroyed. So we have three Old Testament passages that Peter says to his readers. I'm trying to tell you this is what it means to be a Christian. And understand, people may reject you, but that's fine. Because what we see in the Old Testament telling us about the coming of the Messiah is that he, in fact, would be rejected. And if you worship him, then why would you expect that you would not be rejected? You should note that after a couple of these references, Peter then addresses his readers and points out the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. First of all, the believers. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. I have to tell you, I I was tempted to focus on the word precious. It shows up three times in this passage. Um, And whenever a word is repeated, you should take note of it. What Peter is saying is God sees his son as precious and God's people see Jesus as precious as well. Society has rejected him, but that's fine. So first of all, believers, they see Jesus as precious. To the unbelievers, those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. The good news does not make sense to them. Jesus 
The crucified Messiah does not compute. It doesn't make sense. And therefore they stumble. They disobey the message. They reject Jesus. But this was anticipated. And so as Peter writes to these people who are scattered, the scattered exiles, he says, listen, what you are experiencing is what we find in the life of Jesus, as mentioned in the Old Testament passages. Now we come to the last two verses, verses 9 and 10 of this passage. It's the culmination of everything that Peter has been saying since chapter 1, verse number 13. It begins with the contrast scene with the word but. However, it points to a continuity with what he's been saying, but more importantly, the people of God. 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is how we are to view the people of God, the church, in continuity with Old Testament saints. The language, the vocabulary comes in part from what God said to Israel at Sinai. Um, Before the Ten Commandments are given, God says in Exodus 19.6, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then as instructions are given about the promised land that they are going to enter in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And this is what it means to be a Christian, Peter tells his writers. To be a part of the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people belonging to God. Remember we said about conversion that it is a breaking with the past. That there is, in a sense, a reconstruction. This is who I am. This is who I used to be. And Peter ends by saying, once you were not a people. That's interesting. He's still thinking of people. He's not thinking of individuals, but he's thinking of people. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Part of conversion is a breaking with the past, and we hear it in this verse. Not only a breaking with the past, but a new beginning of receiving mercy, of being the people of God. But another aspect is inclusion in the church, in the community, the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And the Lord willing, we will look at this a bit more closely next week. We should remember that our experience may in fact mirror that of Jesus. Rejected by human judgment, but precious in the sight of God. I don't think for the most part as Christians in this country that that is something that we face. Uh, I don't know that we are rejected. I think if anything, we're simply ignored. We've just been sort of put on the sidelines. Part of that, I think, is our fault. But in a tolerant society, and perhaps we're afraid to say this is what is true, um, I think we're ignored more than anything else. That was not true of our brothers and sisters in the first century and the century since then. Rejected 
by human judgment as Jesus was, and many of them suffered by being put to death. And then one last thing. We've seen this, and we saw this early when we looked at worship back in January. We become like what we worship. The psalmist says this time and time again. Those who worship idols become like their idols. Whatever you exalt, that's what you become like. Well, if we come, in our verse number four, the beginning of our passage, we come to worship. As you come to him, as we come to the Lord Jesus to worship him, by God's grace, we should become like him. He's a living stone. We are living stones. He is rejected by men. We may, in fact, be rejected by men. He is precious to God, and we are precious to God as well. God has a purpose to build a spiritual house, a house for his spirit, his glory. It's not a literal house. The point is we don't stand alone. We are to stand together. We are a priesthood, not simply individual priests running around. Together we serve God. And together we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. As far as we can tell, Peter never met the people to whom he's writing. So we don't have names. He doesn't say, haven't seen you in a while, I'm writing just to catch up. But that works out good, because now he says, this is who you are. This is what it means to be a Christian. And I think for us in 2012, we need to hear Peter all over again and recognize what conversion truly is. An event, but also a process. Inclusion into a community. Something that is profoundly social. Something that is a breaking with the past and a new beginning. But also the power of the word of God. That there is an author. We are to be the readers. And it is in scripture that we meet God. As individuals, certainly. But as the people of God. This is where we meet God. I've said this to people before, but if you were to force me, if you were to pin me to the wall and say, Damon, has there ever been, I want you to point out one time in which in public worship you've had a sense of the presence of God here at the Church of Melrose. I wouldn't hesitate. It's been during the reading of Scripture. It's in the reading of Scripture that we hear the voice of God. The author speaks and we listen. And a relationship is continuing because of the word of God. With that in mind, we can now progress to verse number 11. Okay, if this is true, if this is the nature of conversion and the power of the word of God, how am I supposed to live? What does God expect of me in terms of my conduct in the world? And that's what Peter will tackle next. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a time of rampant individualism, radical individualism, but also we want things to be simplified. We want them to be reduced to the least common denominator. And I fear that we have done great disservice to the wonderful gift of your grace of new life in Christ. And we have, in some ways, shown disrespect for your word. 
we view things like the people around us, the culture around us, as a matter of transaction. We even struggle, I think, because of the culture, to develop deep relationships. It's just a skill that has not been passed on. Things are reduced to the click of a button. I thank you that you remain faithful. You remain patient with us. May we see that through your Son and through your Word, you call us to yourself to be in relationship, to listen to you, to speak to you. And while others may reject us, we are precious to you. And while they have rejected your Son, he is precious to you as well. And may we remember that to be a Christian means to be a part of the church, the family of God, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We do not stand alone. We cannot and we should not. I thank you that on this first day of a new week, we could gather in this place as your people to worship you. By your grace, may we become like that which we worship. You are Father, your Son, and your Spirit. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand please? We'll sing the doxology together.